exciting for me is it is potentially a really intact, untouched example of a villa which can tell us something about how someone with money and power and status in a period when Roman administration in Britain is settled and comfortable, how someone money and power and status actually goes about spending that money showing off the sort of person they are. We can get a bit of a feel for the character of the person. We can get a bit of a feel for what Roman life in Roman period Britain was like. You know, we potentially got a site here that could be another one that goes into the textbooks. You know, children could be learning about this in school in 10 years time in the same way they do Chedworth. And what we've also got is potentially and really excitingly that sense of, well, what happened afterwards? If we've got that sense of how did someone create this as an expression of their, what they wanted to show off, what happened as time passed and how does that carry on and can we bridge from the end of Roman period Britain into later centuries and get some understanding of what happened at the end of Roman Britain. And I think that's really contemporary because we're at the period of great change at the moment. I mean, so much of what we say about the end of Roman Britain sounds horribly like Brexit. And, you know, to, we, we can sort of empathise with the idea that, that kind of political unions don't stay the same and we're kind of living through that. And so I think that also is for me really exciting to see. Let's just see if we can get a hint of how people adapted, what they did, and, and what trace that leaves behind, and can we understand it? I think it, it is a massively exciting moment because uh, so many villas are have been you know, been tampered with in the nineteenth century. Unrecorded excavations, which have taken artifacts and and damaged floors and messed about with it, um, and and to find one that's potentially untouched would be amazing. You know, even if it's been slightly ploughed is, is, is still uh, amazing but you know obviously a, a good geophysical survey is key to everything to identify uh if you can get the dining room if you can get an area where you've got uh, the mosaic floor and the artwork uh, of, of the elite living there if you can identify surrounding areas like the mausoleum or the burial ground and the farm buildings these are all things which we really need resolving uh, because all the other excavations have just been so tied up with the main villa and they're mostly you know, 100, 200 years old excavations. Uh, and they've done more damage than, than good. So to get a new bit of research work onto a potentially untouched villa, uh, it should be fantastic. You know, that's a, that's a major, major uh, advance in our understanding. Within a, a villa complex, obviously we're gonna be finding out that we've got lots of different rooms and lots of different features. So it'll be nice to go around, take samples from all of those different types of features. Uh, and then see what's in there. So for example, we might be finding building materials. We might be finding um, sort of, I'd expect high status pottery, uh, nice painted mortaria, maybe even painted plaster, um, samium ware. Um, and then even smaller things like tiny glass beads or tiny metal decorative objects. Again, um, because the soils down in Oxfordshire can be quite clayey. And as anybody who knows Time Team and archaeologists, clay is awful when it's dry. It's awful when it's wet. So again, that visibility, digging away, looking on the ground, it's, it's not easy to see anything. So chuck it in the tank. Put it this way, Tim. If you put the soil in there, if it's in there, 
I'll find it. If it's not, I won't. It's as simple as that. It's like an extra roll of the dice that we get to have with this technique. So, yeah, you get your nice fancy wares. And then, again, like I was saying about the um, environmental evidence, if it's a high-status site, we might see um, nice caches of grain and we can work out um, whether they're producing it on site or maybe it's being imported from elsewhere, things like the edible snail. Um, other mollusks will tell us about the surrounding environment and conditions. So, yeah, from one soil sample, you can be looking for, yeah, a massive range of things all at once. A lot of the places that the Romans established in the landscape are already pre-existing tribal centres. They're already pre-existing farmsteads. This, this landscape, particularly in Oxfordshire, is, is well populated before the Romans get here. Many examples of Iron Age settlements and field systems exist on the, on the better soils. You have networks of roads in this landscape long before the Romans ever get here as well. There are many settlements that have shown up in the, the, uh, the Thames Valley gravels areas which show trackways and settlements along the trackways. This is all put all in the landscape, remember, before the Romans come and build these big military roads. You have uh, Iron Age hill forts, which are, are often at the, the centre of these tribal areas, or they're around the perimeters. And they are fixed points in the landscape that the Romans are trying to impose themselves into as well. So as well as understanding the natural geography, the geology, what resources it can offer, what the soils can offer in terms of crops and grazing and all that sort of thing, because you need those resources to sustain the Roman military and then settlement. You've also got to start to put on your map, as it were, on top of the geology. You've got to start to put the map of what's already there when the Romans arrive and see how they fit into that. Here we have a location that uh, in the past seems to produce some small amounts of amphora. We did a dig at Gear Farm that was almost like a metropolis of the Iron Age, huge number of Iron Age huts and things like that, and evidence of trade. And I wanted to go back in time what were the origins of this trade and how early could it have started? People must have known what they were coming for and they must have brought things that the Cornish wanted in return for the tin because the tin was incredibly valuable. It, copper is, is a difficult metal and once you alloy it with tin, it becomes hard and sharp. And, and given that most of this bronze was being used probably for cutting down trees, that's a big clearance for agriculture you do you really really need the tin it is incredibly valuable so what do the Cornish people want well um, once we move on to things like the amphorae things that are containers it's very tempting to see uh, amphorae as being lovely pieces you know lovely pottery pieces lovely lovely jars how useful a jar would be but they're probably actually being traded for what's in them and the thing that you can do with that is because um, we have waxes and fats and so on that are in a lot of these containers they, and porous pottery, they soak into the pottery and they leave behind these traces that can be, um, can be analysed. For me, it's going to be far more interesting looking at the wider landscape 
um, and seeing how it relates to other Iron Age features, whether there's roundhouses, whether we've got enclosures, and that I think is where we're going to contribute more. You have to take the overview. You almost have to think a little bit like a parachute is jumping out of an aeroplane. You know, you you leap out, and and as you as you descend, you see the landscape below you. You and hopefully you'll find somewhere nice and comfortable to land. But you have to take an overview first, which is not not to get sucked into any detail. can't do any of this work without you so please subscribe back us on patreon and make sure that time team comes back again